Let's turn, if you will, to John 21. John chapter 21. If you'll notice, that's the last chapter of the Gospel of John. We have finally made it to the last chapter. Now, do not get the idea that we're going to finish the chapter today. In fact, I have it planned out. I really do. I, I haven't planned the whole thing out when we started uh, three years ago. I didn't plan anything out. I just said, Lord, you just take us through it as you want us to go. But in this particular chapter, we're going to spend the next three weeks, counting this one, uh, to finish this wonderful gospel. And uh, there's, there's reasons why it's, we're going to break it down that way. And you'll see as we, as we go along. So here we are at the beginning of John chapter 21. And I'd like to read the first four verses and then bring us up to par with where we've been. John 21 verse one. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel, Cana, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. That's seven in total. Verse three, Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, we also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Now, were we to read aloud the last two verses of chapter 20 of John's gospel, we could assume that they sound very much like a solid conclusion to a great work. That is to say that if there were no chapter 21, we'd have a complete gospel. Well, let me, let me read it to you. Verses 30 and 31 of the previous chapter. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now you know that this is a good place to put an amen. But did you notice there isn't one? But it would be a good place because we would really have a complete gospel with everything that John has written. And what a concluding statement verse 31 would be. But the apostle John wasn't content simply explaining a subject albeit a, a grand subject like the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the effect that that resurrection had on his disciples as well as especially Thomas, which that chapter closes out with. But we need, to, we need not to forget that John was an evangelist who wanted to accomplish an objective. He wanted his audience of readers to believe in Jesus Christ and to be saved. That is not only something we get from the last verse of chapter 20, that is something we have seen from the very beginning of this gospel. 
He wanted his readers to believe in Jesus Christ and to be saved. He didn't set out to write a biography for the sake of entertaining, nor did he set out to produce an historical tome to enlighten anyone who might be interested in this subject. He was writing a gospel. He was writing an evangel, a good news. He was writing good news to change men's lives. And obviously, without Christ in the world, there's only bad news. But the good news is focused completely and entirely upon Jesus Christ. So John spoke directly to his audience in verse 31, and he said, But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, life is one of the key words that John uses in his gospel. In fact, he uses it at least 36 times. And, and that's a pretty good amount of, of, of usage for one word in a gospel of 21 chapters. The apostle wanted, in, in other words, the apostle wanted to make it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ offers sinners abundant and eternal life. An abundant life. And that not just about being here, not just what you can get here. That abundant life that Jesus brings to those who would believe in him is one that extends into eternity. This is the reason why Jesus said, lay not up your treasures on the earth where moth and rust can destroy or where thieves can break in and steal. He says, lay up your treasures in heaven. This is the abundant life that Jesus spoke of. But it wasn't just an abundant life, it was an eternal life. An eternal life that would be with him, with God, forever. And the only way that sinners can receive it is through personal faith in him. The only way. So consider this thought. If sinners need life, then the implication is that they're dead. If sinners need life, then it's important to note that they are dead. And not physically dead, of course. As I look around here today, most of you are pretty physically alive. Somewhat. Still trying to wake up. <laughs> but you're here. And I bet you if we, if, we, if, we, if, we, if we tried a little bit of, you know, see you know, your pulse, you probably have one. I really do hope you do. So you're alive, physically. But we're talking about spiritual death. We're talking about being dead spiritually. And the Apostle Paul dealt with that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. In other words, he makes it very clear to us that this is the kind of death that we have to overcome as sinners. Because he said in Ephesians 2, verse 1, he says, And, and you has he quickened, which, which means you has he made alive. You has he made alive or quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, something that still continues on in this, in this time and, and, and uh, era in which we live. And then he says in verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation, which means our conduct 
in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. So everything was about the flesh. Everything what we were doing was in the flesh and the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. This is reeking out, you know, for the things of the world. Which was in every sinner's heart. But then we read in verse 4 two words. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us, which means he's made us alive. He's quickened us together with Christ by grace. You are saved. And what the Apostle Paul was making clear to us here in Ephesians chapter 2 is that salvation is not a matter of resuscitation. It is a matter of resurrection. Because when you're dead, you're dead. And even spiritually, when you're dead, you're dead. And then John records the words of Jesus to make that even more crystal clear. In John 5, 24, the words of Jesus saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And I want you to notice something. That is present. You have it has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death to life. You have passed from death to life. Why? Because you were spiritually dead. But now you're spiritually alive in Christ if indeed you have believed in the only begotten Son of God and what he has come to do on your behalf. And then John concluded verse 31 with the statement and that believing you might have life through his name. Well, here's the question. What is his name? Now you might say, well, it's, it's Yeshua, it's Jesus, which means God is salvation. And that's true. But that's not the name that John is referring to. That, you, that believing you might have life through his name. The emphasis throughout John's gospel was on his name, I am. His name, Ego Eimi. I am, the name that was attributed to God. From the very beginning, in, in, in Exodus chapter 3, the name given to Moses when Moses said, well, what is, what is your name so I might tell Pharaoh? The name of the God that is sending me. And God said to him, I am that I am. The Lord Jesus himself made his seven great I am statements in this gospel. The gospel of John. Offering the lost all that they need. And each of the seven pertains to this life. Each of them. Think about it. Obviously, the first one is the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who believes in me shall never hunger. Shall never thirst. By the way, it's, it's uh, John 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. And then there's 
Jesus saying in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have, he says, the light of life. Think about the necessity that this life has for light. Biologically speaking, there are a lot of things that need light for, for existence. Jesus, of course, is talking about spiritual life, but he says that he is the light of the world. That when we believe in him, we will, have the, we will not walk in darkness, but we will have the light of life. And then he goes on and he says that he is the door. He says, I am the door of the sheep, chapter 10, verse 9. And of course, when it pertains to life in this particular sense, it is that we are able to go into a safe place because he says those who come in shall be saved and your life shall be protected because you've entered in through the only true door. And then just two verses later, he says, I am the good shepherd. Verse verse 11 of chapter 10, I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And without the good shepherd giving his life for the sheep, we have no hope for life in eternity. We have no hope for spiritual life that will last forever. And then in chapter 11, of course, he says he is the resurrection and the life. There, facing the, the very tomb of his friend Lazarus. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, will live. And then when Jesus was with his disciples, with his 11, after Judas Iscariot leaves to betray him, he says to those disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's no other way. Jesus is making it clear that there's no other way, there's no other religion, there's no other thought, there's no other philosophy that can get you eternal salvation except through him. No other way. And on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Think about the... the, the, the dependency that we have upon Jesus for life as a branch has dependency for life upon the vine if it's cut off from the vine no life every statement every one of those seven statements that Jesus made pertains to this life that John speaks of in chapter 31 um, chapter 20 verse 31 that believing you might have life through his name. And we could say, Amen. But we still have chapter 21. So now, as we enter into this last chapter, most commentators will tell us that, the, that, that chapter 21 is, is the epilogue for the Gospel of John. Now, The simple definition of the word epilogue is a section or speech at the end of a book or play that serves as a 
as a comment on or a conclusion to what has happened. Well, that's a standard definition for epilogue. But I, I read from the Cambridge English Dictionary, and, and the definition itself comes even closer in regarding the Gospel of John. And listen to what it says. It says of an epilogue that it is a speech or piece of text added to the end of a play or book, often giving a short statement about what happens to the characters after the play or the book finishes. Well, that's a more detailed definition of epilogue, isn't it? From that standpoint, then it is indeed an epilogue. Why? Because in this case, it will be eventually about, it'll be eventually about one character. We know him as Peter. In all three sections that we're going to look at in the next three weeks, including this one, has Peter at the very center of it. And so, this epilogue, if you will, focuses on Peter to whom Jesus restores his apostleship. But that's to come. That's not today. But in a general sense, this 21st chapter of John, as the epilogue to his gospel, will teach us how to relate to the risen Christ. Now, it will be significantly different and distinctive from the disciples because, first of all, we know that the disciples were with Jesus. They saw him. They touched him. They felt him. They ate with him. They, they, they saw the miracles that he did. They heard the, 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 the messages that he preached with authority from heaven. They, they, they were there. They were the eyewitnesses. They're the reasons why we today can believe because we believe their testimony. But they still had to learn how to relate to Jesus after he rose from the dead. And think about that, if you will, for a moment. Look at, look at last week in Thomas. How he didn't want to believe. He just didn't believe. No, 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 no. We saw him. We saw him. He's alive. No, 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 no. You ever felt that way about things that pertain to God? No, 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 no. That was Thomas. Until what? Until he did appear with the disciples and Jesus then appeared again. And it changed his whole life. My Lord and my God, he said to Jesus. The fact of the matter is we need to learn how to relate to the risen Christ as well sometimes. Sometimes very similar to the very same reasons why they did. And had to. And here's, here's something that links us to them. Jesus' followers were about to take their Lord's place in the world. And they were going to begin to take the gospel message to others. Which is the commission that he's given to each and every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ. Isn't it? Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. And then again, during that time, after the resurrection, they, they never knew when the Lord would appear. So they had to be on the alert. I mean, they really had to be on the alert. Because Jesus, boom, he'd pop up and, hi guys. But now see, if, now, 
Jesus doing that, they were no longer afraid. The first time, they were. The second time, when he appeared to Thomas, they were ready for him, except Thomas. <laughs> and, but, but all of this should remind us of, of the very same thing, that for us, Jesus can come at any moment, so we'd be ready and be, we, we need to be ready and be on our toes. We need to be ready for Jesus. But how does the Lord find his disciples when he shows up there at the Sea of Tiberias? And by the way, you know, when you look at verse 1, let's go back to verse 1. When you look at verse 1 and the mention of the Sea of Tiberias, I'd like for you to highlight that or underline it or something. Because we're coming back to that, but it's really important that you do. That this is a teaser for you to come back next week because we're going to talk about it next week after these things Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the sea of Tiberias and on this wise showed he himself there were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus or the twin and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee who we know as John, James and John and two other of his disciples unnamed, seven of them in total. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. Now that makes Peter sound like a southerner in the United States. But he was actually a northerner in Israel. They say unto him, we also go with thee. And they went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught Nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Why? <laughs> Why not? Well, let's, let's go back and examine the text a little bit. We, we, we don't know from the other... Uh, I should say that we do know from the other Gospels that Jesus had instructed his disciples to meet him in Galilee. That we do know. And they were certainly there. Uh, in fact, before Jesus entered into the Garden of Gethsemane, or maybe at the very entrance of the Garden of Gethsemane, before going to pray, before being arrested, before being taken to be tried, and all of that, this is what Jesus said to them in Matthew 26, verse 32. He tells them, but after I am risen again. Now remember, this is before he goes to the cross. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. So there was the message already given to them. Now, two chapters later in Matthew 28, verses 7 through 10, uh, a, lot is, a lot is going on as we discovered over the last couple of weeks here studying Jesus' resurrection. But the women were, were, uh, were met by some angels, and the angels themselves were telling the women this, go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. He goeth before you into Galilee, there shall you see him. Lo, I have told you, and, and they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to, get, to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet, and they worshipped him. And then said Jesus unto them, 
Be not afraid, go tell my brethren, speaking of the other disciples, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there shall they see me. So we already know from the scriptures that they were told to meet Jesus at the Galilee. So getting back to the chapter 21, we are prompted then to ask a couple of questions. First of all, why are the disciples going fishing? Why are they going fishing? So we see a list of, of seven disciples. Peter is still the headliner. He's still the one mentioned first. Along with Thomas, who just had his encounter with Jesus, Nathaniel, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and two other unidentified disciples. Now, these may have all been fishermen, and I, I'm, I come to that conclusion that they were all together at the Sea of Galilee. They were all there ready. When Peter says, I'm going fishing, they said, yeah, we'll go too. Which gives some indication that they were fishermen as well. Well, we know the sons of Zebedee were. And if one of the unidentified uh, uh, disciples was, was Andrew, then we know he was a fisherman because that's, uh, that's Peter's brother. And so the others uh, themselves were more than likely fishermen. And that, that leaves the other question, where are the other three? Well, the other three were probably not fishermen. And, but, you know, I mean, one of them, of course, was Matthew himself, or Levy. Uh, he was a tax collector, you know, so eh, he probably didn't like being on boats. So I'm, not, I'm just saying, but, uh, you know, he wasn't there in the other two that weren't mentioned. So they probably weren't fishermen, but, but they, they were there at the Galilee because they would have obeyed Jesus to be at the Galilee. So they were probably nearby, maybe in a home where they were all sharing because they were all called to be there. Now, again, I don't want to go into too much speculation or whatever, but Peter may have become a little bit anxious with the inactivity, which sometimes we ourselves do. Uh, we become a little bit anxious with, with nothing to do sometimes. And they were just sitting there waiting for Jesus. And, uh, you know, um, um, well, there's a boat. I was a fisherman once. Uh, I think I'm just going fishing. The other guy said, well, if he's going, we ought to go too. We'll go. And off they go. And they get into the boat. The boat probably was uh, Zebedee's boat, uh, the, the father of James and John, more than likely. So he, he might have been a bit anxious with the inactivity or, or quite possibly he was ready to pick up where he left off when he had forsaken all to follow Jesus. That's another possibility. How many times have we ourselves gotten into a position where we have been very active in ministry, very active in ministry and sometimes ministry wanes or, 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 or things happen where you slow down and and eventually you think, well, maybe I should go back to what I used to do. And that might not be what God wants you to do. But unless he yanks that leash, he, you know, he lets us kind of discover things. And Peter just said, well, let's see this fishing thing again. 
Turn to Luke chapter 5. Because I want to remind you of the moment that Peter forsook all to follow Jesus. Luke chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. And keep your finger there because we'll come back to chapter 5 and read right before this. It says, So it was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Peter, Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Now we all know what brought this whole thing about was the catch of fish. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But what he said to Simon was, Fear not, from henceforth, from here on, thou shalt catch men. Not fish, thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they, including Peter, forsook all and followed Jesus. They forsook all. Now, we had talked about this a while back, that at at some point they had forsaken and then went back to fishing. But it was at this point that they finally forsook everything and followed Jesus for three and a half years. So, this incident then in Luke is significant because it points out the first great catch of fish acquired with Jesus' direction. Remember, he had been preaching and he got into the boat and while they were in the boat after he was preaching, he says to Peter, let's go fishing. Jesus said it. And uh, let's go over here. And, and, And Peter says, you know, Lord, we've fished all night. I'm the professional. I'm the one that has, you know, the Bass, Bass Pro Shop card. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the big fisherman here, you know, Jesus. But, okay, we'll go fishing. And they caught so much fish that another boat had to come. And when the other boat came, they were dragging. And the nets were breaking. And they were dragging all these fish. And the two ships almost sank because of the number of fish they had caught. Y'all remember that. So as in Luke then, they may have been professional fishermen, but the point in our text is that without Jesus, they could do nothing. Because he was now their Lord and their master, and he told them, from here on, you will catch men. They didn't even catch one fish. They probably didn't even catch a cold. That night they caught nothing, it said. Their self-sufficiency was inadequate. Once they had received their call from Jesus, their self-sufficiency was inadequate. They could no longer do anything on their own. Some people may not like that. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to love that. They must know and depend upon the risen Lord for everything. And for sure, the Lord wasn't leading Peter back into the fishing business. Okay, Peter, go ahead. I caught nothing. I caught nothing. I caught nothing. Okay, do you get it now? Without me, you can do nothing. 
But when the morning was now come, verse 4 of our text back in John 21, when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Now here's a beautiful thing. The Lord knew exactly where they were. And he also knew what they were up to. You know, we, we might suppose that they were doing one thing or another, but Jesus knew at their heart. Jesus knew exactly what they were doing and what they were up to. So there was Jesus. His presence was immediate. It was sudden and unexpected, just like the two meetings in the upper room in Jerusalem. It was a, it was a bodily presence, standing there on the shore with the early morning sun illuminating him as, as any other person on the seashore. I mean, there was no thought of a vision or hallucination or a spirit. They just saw someone standing on the shore. But they just didn't know it was Jesus. And then Jesus saith unto them, verse 5, Children, <laughs> have you any meat? In effect, he was saying, hey, have you, you got, did you catch any food? Did you catch any fish? And they answered him. Lo. Lo is, is Hebrew for no. Lo. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. <laughs> Sound familiar? Luke 5. They cast, therefore. What were they going to lose if they, you know, who is that guy anyway? Who's he telling, telling us? We're the fishermen here. Sound familiar? They did it anyway. They cast, therefore. And now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. And therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It's the Lord. That's John, by the way. It's the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, which means, you know, he was, he was in his fisherman's clothes, which was, well, practically nothing. But, but notice that he put it on his robe. He didn't just jump in the water. This is important. It was Jesus. And he needed to be clothed. Proper. Still, he jumps in because he wants to get to Jesus. Now, that's an interesting thing for him to do because he was still bearing a tremendous amount of guilt for having denied Jesus three times, which is, by the way, coming up, but not today. But do you see his love for Jesus? It's the Lord. And he jumps in the water. He cast himself into the sea and, and the other disciples came in a little ship. For they were not far from land, but as it were, 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes. So, Jesus called out to them with an interesting word. Paidon, P-A-I-D-O-N in the Greek. Paidon, children. 
Even more simply, what he was saying to them, because it would have been uh, gender correct, what he said to them was, boys, because that's a term of endearment. Paidon is a term of endearment. He said, boys, do you have any food? Did you catch anything? Well, they responded as anyone would to someone unfamiliar with them. They just said no, a single monosyllabic word, <laughs> no. And what tipped John off? What tipped John off? That it was Jesus. Jesus knew where the fish were. Jesus knew where the fish were, and Jesus always knows where the fish are. Jesus always knows that. This is, this is, this is where our trust in the Lord needs to begin when we go out to tell people about Jesus. He knows where the fish are. He also knows where the people are that need him. By the way, did somebody find you? You might have been swimming in some murky, ugly water, but somebody caught you, right? And sometimes Jesus will send us into murky water. We need to listen as to where he's calling us. All he had to hear was, cast the net on the right side of the ship and you shall find. He took care of them. He was taking care of his disciples again. How he was reinforcing them in their new calling. <clears throat> he wasn't blasting them for not recognizing him. He knew exactly what their response was going to be before they even said it. But he was there to take care of them as he was before the crucifixion. He would be there to take care of them after the resurrection. And even after his ascension, he would send his Holy Spirit so that all of us would be taken care of by him at every moment of our lives. He was teaching them how to relate to the risen Christ. And the response was exactly what it should have been. Peter, Peter clothed himself and he jumped into the lake and he swam to shore while the other disciples followed in the boat. You see, when people hear that great news that Jesus is really alive and that he is the sovereign majesty of the universe, they should do just what the disciples did. They should rush to him as quickly as possible. But we have to have the message. We have to have the gospel. We have to have the truth. And the truth has to be coming forth from our lives, the light of the glory of Christ in us to a dark and dead world. For Peter, it was a complete contrast to his first fishing expedition with Jesus. Going back to Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, as I said, reading before what we read earlier, when they had... when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. Their nets were breaking and they, they, they beckoned unto their partners which were in the other ship that they should come and help them. And they came and both uh, filled both the ships so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. And what does he say to him? He says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me. What a different re reaction after the resurrection, 
It's the Lord, John said. And Peter jumps to get to Jesus. But here in Luke, he says, Depart from me from a sinful man, O Lord, for he was astonished and all that were with him at the draft of the fishes which they had taken. But also consider this contrast, that in Luke's account, the nets were about to break with a catch. But here in John's gospel, the nets were holding fast. Oh, save that for next week. You got to come back. Their nets were holding fast. More on that later. I know this may sound like a, a funny place to, to start moving toward the communion table. But yes, you have to come back. Coming to the table of communion. Today, let's, let's remember a few things. Let's remember a few things pertaining to salvation and why we should not be without Christ as his day approaches. This may be speaking to your heart today. I hope it is. So that you might, even now, call out to Jesus. But the very same Peter, who is still yet to be dealt with in this chapter, would only a couple of weeks later, a few weeks later, be in, the, in front of a multitude of Jewish people in the Feast of Pentecost at the temple, and he would say these words to them. In Acts 2, verses 23 and 24, speaking of Jesus to them, he said, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whom, notice this, whom God has raised up. And Peter preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that he was alive again. Whom God has raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. What people need to know, what we needed to know when we came to know Christ is what people still need to know today that the Christ that we preach, that the Lord that we preach is alive. He's not just some idealistic metaphor or allegory. As some people even in churches are preaching and teaching today. No, he is the risen Christ who died on a cross for our sins, who shed his blood for our forgiveness and has risen from the dead three days later, as he said he would. Paul, in speaking of the faith of Abraham in Romans 4, verses 23 through 25, says, not it, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, for, but for us also to whom, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. We need to know and sinners need to know that Jesus died for them. That he died and, and, and did so to deliver them from those offenses. Because he took their sins upon himself on the cross. And then he was raised again 
for our justification, that if we believe in Jesus Christ, then we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, and we ourselves have been risen unto newness of life. Later on in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11, something we've read already uh, last week, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. We cannot come short of letting people know what Christ has done on their behalf. But to understand what salvation is, we have to know that without salvation, we will die eternally and be separated eternally. Yeah, there will be an existence. When we talk about eternal life with God, it is a life that is filled with joy and peace and gladness for eternity. But there's an eternity for those who are separated from God, and it's an eternity of punishment and damnation. Simply because they rejected the truth. So Paul says, thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whoso believeth, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. But that confession with the mouth is so important to make before God and before witnesses that there has truly been a change of life and a change of heart and a change of ways because when you are dead and you become alive, that is significant. You're a different creature. You're a different person. That's the miracle of salvation through Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 14, Paul said, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. There was nothing to fear about death if we are in Christ. Nothing to fear about death. And lastly, 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, which means... Very simply, that he has caused us to be born again unto a living hope. He has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Not on this earth, reserved in heaven. Just as we talked about that treasure, we don't lay up treasures on this earth, we lay up treasures in heaven. But it is reserved in heaven for you who are kept, guarded, protected by the power of God through faith and unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that opportunity for Christ is here and now. To know him and never not to know him. They were called to Galilee because Jesus said, I'll meet you there. They see him and they don't know him. Distractions of this world sometimes. The distractions of, of, of unknowing. But as soon as he showed himself, cast thy nets on the right side.
you'll find the fish. It, 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 it awakened them. And sometimes we need to be awakened. But the ones who need to be awakened more than anyone are those that are dead in Christ or, or dead without Christ and need Christ right now.